0: You're listening to EU Watchdog Radio.
1: Welcome to a new episode of EU Watchdog Radio. My name is Hans van Schaar, media officer at Corporate Europe Observatory, also known as CEO. And yes, once more, we must discuss the coronavirus and how governments are being sidelined by powerful pharmaceutical companies. In this episode, we'll touch base on where we stand with the pandemic and access to vaccines and therapeutics. We are now December 2021, and the COVID-19 pandemic is still raging in many parts of the world. And while most sensible Europeans are happy to be receiving a booster jab, in low- and middle-income countries most people can only dream of having access to such a vaccine. The head of the World Health Organization warned in July that the gap in COVID-19 supplies is hugely uneven and inequitable. He said countries and regions should not order more millions of doses before other countries have supplies to vaccinate their health workers and most vulnerable, especially when the Delta variant is driving a new spike in COVID-19 cases and death." In the meantime, we watch the spread of Omicron. The production of vaccines needs to be scaled up urgently, experts have been saying for many, many months. And many of those experts, scientists, hundreds of NGOs, top politicians and the Pope have argued that an important hurdle for that upscaling are patents and intellectual property rights and the refusal by Big Pharma to share technology. And the truth is that the EU is de facto blocking the increase of production because it wants to protect the competitiveness of its pharmaceutical sector by protecting its patents. And also by allowing non-transparency on, for example, the price of medicines. And all this while the EU has spent billions of public money for the research and development, production and de-risking of new vaccines. And while globally, no less than 93 billion euros of public money has been spent on developing therapeutics for COVID-19. The Financial Times recently wrote, and I quote, The danger of such an unequal rollout has been underlined by the emergence of the new and potentially dangerous Omicron variant. Although its origins are still unclear, scientists have long warned that new variants are more likely if large parts of the world remain unvaccinated. "No one is safe until everyone is safe," said said Berkeley, chief executive of Gavi, the UN-backed Vaccine Alliance. "End of quote." Another quote, "The vaccine must become a global common good." said E.C. President Ursula von der Leyen in the spring of 2020, the start of the pandemic. We now know that unfortunately those were empty words. Well over a year ago India and South Africa called on the World Trade Organization WTO to temporarily suspend part of an intellectual property trade agreement known as TRIPS, which allows pharmaceutical corporations to monopolize medical knowledge and even though many COVID-19 vaccines and treatments, as said, were paid for by taxpayers, the TRIPS agreement basically makes sure that resulting medicines become the um, highly monopolized and profitable property of a handful of the world's biggest uh, corporations. Now the Indian and South Africa proposal to waive the TRIPS agreement for a part of a short time is backed by pretty much of every Southern government. But the European Union was and remains a stubborn opponent of the TRIPS waiver. Despite political rhetorics, the European Union has been dealing with the pandemic in a very Eurocentric way and seems to have a deep love affair with Big Pharma. The European Commission, the executive branch of the EU, not only has a very Eurocentric way of dealing with the pandemic but also persists in complete secrecy on how it negotiates with powerful pharmaceutical companies. In this new episode of EU Watchdog Radio, we'll talk to CEO researcher Olivier Hudemann on the fact that when it comes to new Covid therapeutics coming on the market now, the EU is set to make the same mistakes all over. But first, we'll talk to Dimitri Eynickel, an expert of Doctors Without Borders, who outlines where we stand with the access to therapeutics worldwide. Dimitri Einigel already explained in a summer episode of this podcast why the proposals of the EU to boost global production and access to vaccines and therapeutics will simply not work. He then stated that it's shameful that the EU has put a hollow proposal on the table in the middle of a global pandemic. Unfortunately, since then... The EU has not changed its position and seems to dig in even deeper and tries to derail derail the ongoing negotiations at the World Trade Organization's WTO in Geneva, the negotiations on the so-called TRIPS waiver. Recently, in the same article, the Financial Times published a quite shocking analysis of the power of Pfizer, which by now has 80% of the EU market for COVID vaccines. And I quote... The vaccine has transformed Pfizer's political influence. Since the vaccine's approval at the end of last year, Pfizer's decisions have helped shape the course of the pandemic. It has the power to set prices and to choose which country comes first in an opaque queuing system, including for the booster programs that rich countries are now scrambling to accelerate. And furthermore, the Financial Times wrote, When it has come to medical solutions to the pandemic, governments have been almost completely dependent on private companies. Welcome Dimitri. Um, We are now um, more than a year after South Africa and India and many other countries have tried to promote a TRIPS waiver to make uh, vaccines and other therapeutics more available to the rest of the world. I would like to ask you uh, what you from MSF, um, how you evaluate the situation in which we are uh, now.
0: The situation today at global level remains that there's a very large inequity worldwide with global access to COVID-19 tools. For sure for vaccines, but also for the other tools as tests and, and therapeutics. When it comes to to vaccines today, um, the average uh, population coverage in in Africa is around six percent, where we know that some countries have have a better population coverage, like South Africa, which is a little bit more wealthy um, and, and has better access to to infrastructure, etc., and, and, and to these tools, where it's around uh, nineteen or twenty percent. Uh, but there are other African countries that are that are way behind and only have a few percentages of population coverage. Um, And we do know for sure that a main aspect of this is that still supplies are um, very slow to Africa and to lower-middle-income and lower-income countries more generally. As you may remember from some of our previous discussions, a lot of these poorer countries rely on COVAX, which is an international supply system, procurement system for COVID-19 vaccines. It it had intended to deliver 2.1 billion doses by the end end of this year, to enable that at least 20% of the population, um, in, in particularly in these poorer countries, would be able to be vaccinated. They're currently at around 500 million vaccines, so only a quarter has been delivered by COVAX, and that's largely because there's a very limited supply going to COVAX. Uh, actually, of those 500 million doses, most of the recent um, deliveries that were done by COVAX were donations. COVAX has has large orders with pharmaceutical companies that have never been fulfilled, such as by Johnson & Johnson. They're still lagging behind um, in their delivery. But nevertheless, uh, rich countries or wealthier countries are donating some of their excess doses to COVAX, but that was not how the system was intended. And even of those donations, um, the numbers are lagging behind. Uh, The European Union promised to deliver 250 million doses by the end of this year, which is in about a month, less than a month. And there's still around 90 million doses so far. So about half of what they promised has been delivered. Uh, so it's quite unlikely that they will meet their intended target. So this shows you how there's a lack of supply going to those countries, either through um, arrangements that were made directly with those companies, through the African Union or through COVAX, there's, there's limited supply coming through. And this is across the board. This is for all tools that we see this. Um, there's still a lack of tests as well. That's research by the World Health Organization from a few weeks ago that has shown that only one in seven people that um, contracted COVID 19 has actually been tested uh, because of a lack of testing, uh, particularly in Africa. Um, And then when it comes to therapeutics, there are some new uh, therapeutics entering the market now or being on offer. Um, Some of them are actually quite useful for lower and middle income countries, low and middle income countries because they're easy to take and they prevent that people um, have severe disease and would have to go to the hospital. So it's actually quite useful considering you know capacity, hospital capacity is quite limited in, in some of these poorer countries. So um, in that sense, these therapeutics would definitely be helpful. But in able to take them correctly, these medicines, you need to be tested first, so there's a problem there. Um, if there's a lack of testing, I mean, and in addition to that, we see that while some of these companies have signed agreements, what's called a voluntary license agreement, with generic um, competitors uh, to produce to allow them to produce some of these medicines and make them available in some of these low-income countries, particularly low-income countries, um, and it will may help to expand access in those countries. We see that the some of the Countries that are most affected by the disease are left out from these agreements, and they will probably be left behind. And that's a country like Brazil, Brazil, which has been hard struck by the pandemic. Um, they are not part of of such an agreement. Also, Malaysia, etc., which are often middle income countries, and that are still commercially quite interesting for these pharmaceutical companies, they're nothing not not included. So. so- Yes, some progress in terms of voluntary licensing for low-income countries, which are the poorest countries and are also commercially not the most interesting countries for for these pharmaceutical companies, but at the detriment still of um, some middle-income countries that really need these products and may may lag behind in, in terms of access.
1: Thank you very much. Um, In a recent article of the Financial Times um, about the, uh, an in depth article about how uh, Pfizer, which has 80% of the European market of vaccines and and also a large, uh, biggest uh, share of the US market, um, the vaccine has transformed Pfizer's political influence. And they quote a um, vaccine team coordinator of the African Union that was negotiating with Pfizer to get uh, vaccine supplies. And he was promised uh, late last year, so a year ago, uh, an initial 2 million doses to help vaccinate, notably the 5 million healthcare workers in Africa and what he says in the in the in the financial times is that uh, pfizer kept delaying and delaying and they, we got to a spring this year when suddenly uh, this uh, coordinator of the african union saw in the news that the european union struck a huge contract for an additional 1.8 billion doses so the 2 million doses um promised to the african union for their healthcare workers uh, uh, versus the 1.8 Billion doses of the, the European Union. Uh, it, it shows, uh, uh, in a way, that 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 we are really at the mercy. Um, um, it's a bit also in what you just described that um, we are really depending a lot on um, the mercy of uh, private companies and 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 uh, mid- low and middle uh, income countries are um, really depending on, on on donations, philanthropy, and goodwill. That doesn't sound like a very good way to to deal with a pandemic.
0: No for sure that's that's absolutely correct. this is not not a way to to deal with a pandemic and as I explained a bit um, to a large extent countries are now relying on donations, which means they they have to wait until other countries are, are actually satisfied with their with their own population coverage and have sufficient dona- doses to be able to to donate um And I, I for sure there's there's a um, there's a lack of transparency in how these doses are supposed to be delivered, the delivery schedules of those companies, and whether there's any movement in 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 the delivery schedule and the prioritization of those delivery schedules. We just don't know, to be honest. We don't just don't know how companies plan to deliver these doses and in what order. Um, but for sure, what what is explained in in the Financial Times is uh, article is very interesting. Um, and, it, and it reminds me as well of the fact that, that COVAX is still waiting for 200 million doses from, from Johnson & Johnson while um, directly that they, that they were purchased, while at the same time the European Union is, is donating millions of Johnson & Johnson doses to COVAX and taking credit for its donations to COVAX. Which is not bad, but it's, it just raises questions how this can happen, of course, that, um, that these, these deliveries are, are organized in this way. Um, and the delivery of those doses definitely puts companies in a very powerful position. They can determine the price, the delivery, how much, by whom, etc. It's not the government, it's the companies that largely decide this. And in that respect, it's in a way not not something new. This happened before, this was the case before the pandemic and it's something that Dr. Sveira Boris has long Worked on 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 the lack of, of access in, in in low and middle income countries and, and particularly in Africa as well of a lot of tools that are needed there also for HIV for TB etc. But it it largely goes unnoticed that some of these countries have have no access to the tools and then I mean literally that. Um, The intellectual property rights are filed on those products, so nobody can produce them or import them to those countries but the pharmaceutical companies, but then they don't supply them because it's not a priority. So the the countries and and the patients in those countries are basically left with very little options in order to take care of of themselves and their their own health. Um, But I think what is different in this pandemic is because it's a global pandemic where variants emerge and, and spread there's a major risk if we don't take care of the global population and make sure that everybody has access to these tools, and then I don't mean only vaccines, but also tests and therapeutics, um, have access to these tools, as then that causes a risk for everybody else. So that um, the pandemic in that uh, way is a bit different because now it becomes very apparent to us how big this problem is and how it will affect us in the end as well if we don't take care of of uh, global access and, and equity worldwide um, for access to these tools.
1: Yeah, indeed. So that, that refers to the quote, "No one is safe until everyone is safe," as as many uh, European uh, leaders, including Ursula von der Leyen, but also uh, the head of Gavi and many others, have always been saying. And now it comes to how to implement that beautiful phrase. Now. As you know, um, early December, uh, a ministerial meeting at the WTO in Geneva was planned and it was cancelled, unfortunately. Um, but still, there is negotiation still ongoing on this... Um, um, TRIPS waiver um, to basically with, of which the aim always is has been to upscale production right so um, given what also the analysis of the financial times and, and what we have seen um, do you think in, in this incredible power that um, um, that yeah pharmaceutical companies like Pfizer have have, have uh, gained um, um, uh, to quote again the financial times um, when it comes to medical solutions of to the pandemic Governments have been almost completely dependent on private companies. Um, Could it be that um, uh, these companies have been um, putting pressure on governments um, in different parts of the world to uh, drop uh, this idea of the TRIPS waiver? What is your idea about that?
0: As we know the pharmaceutical lobby is one of the most powerful and best organized lobbies in the world. They have extensive influence much more than than many health advocates and patient advocates etc. have. It's they have a tremendous amount of money to influence governments and that's not just by representation. Obviously they have other power, powerful tools as well. Um, they have the power to uh, you know create fear around delocalizing production elsewhere. Um, which would, would be, you know, harmful for, for jobs in a certain country. They have the power to, to over the tools, uh, as we as, as was discussed in the Financial Times article, mm-hmm. um, where there's some some a lack of transparency on how these, these tools are, are allocated. Of course, we don't know if this has been used. But we have no insight in that at all. Um, but for sure, these are aspects that can come up in discussions with governments with regards to their position, for example, on the TRIPS waiver. These are This is leverage that these companies have. Um, we do know from a Bloomberg article from last month that for sure um, Johnson & Johnson and Pfizer have pressured South Africa um, to drop their TRIPS waiver proposal and stop this proposal at the World Trade Organization using supply contracts over vaccines as leverage. Um, that has been reported. We don't know if it has been used elsewhere, but if it has been used in South Africa, I would say we can assume that it has happened elsewhere, we just don't have the proof for it. Um, it's, it would not be a surprise to me at least that that, that would happen. Um, and perhaps that even explains to some extent um, the very strong position of some countries in opposition to the waiver as well, that they, that they are fearing uh, potential setbacks. But I cannot confirm that because I have no proof of this. I only read what, what's in the press from South Africa.
1: Wow. Well, that is, that is. I mean, without wanting to sound naive, still it is shocking, uh, given the circumstances, the exceptional circumstances of a pandemic and the consequences that many uh, countries in the world uh, are, are facing. So given the state of the pandemic with the new um, Omicron um, mutation uh, spreading over the world, given what we know now, how can we understand the stubborn position of the European Union when it comes to the international uh, negotiations on the TRIPS waiver? Why does it seem that the European Commission and the Member States uh, are so strongly um, yeah, um, um, sticking with their, their, their objection to this TRIPS waiver?
0: Well, to, to some extent, this uh, position on the TRIPS waiver is not really a surprise because this has been the positions, of the position of the European Commission and the European Union for the last decade or so. When it comes to intellectual trade, uh, international trade and intellectual property rights, where they want to maintain and strengthen a global system of intellectual property rights, where Western pharmaceutical companies would have um, better access and control over the global market. Which would favor them uh, commercially. Uh, But I have to say that at the same time, the strong opposition of the European Union um, to some extent surprises us as well. Um, It's a bit of a surprise that the European Commission also is not a bit more flexible considering the urgency and the scale of this pandemic, that there cannot be any exception. And exceptions do exist in in intellectual property rights exactly for this reason, and that they do oppose those options. That's the strength by the, of the opposition is maybe a surprise. To some extent, we can assume that they want to keep the pharmaceutical industry close with regards to potential opportunities in the future uh, when it comes to jobs and trade and, and commercial interests that they would like to have the pharmaceutical companies to have a base in Europe and in that sense to, to keep them close and please them. Potentially, there's also a role with regards to access to these tools that the European Union prefers to have these companies close to them, and in that sense um, you know, wants to to have a comfortable position or uh, be on a good footing with these companies, despite the fact that if you don't have equity and a global access to these tools at a global level, then in the end that may undermine exactly that position because you can have all the tools you want, but if there's not sufficient global coverage, it may come back to haunt you in the end, and this is a bit what we're fearing that may happen today.
1: Thank you so much, Dimitri, and uh, thanks a lot for your work. Welcome, Olivier. Um, er- earlier this week, um, you attended a, um, a protest—a quite of a, um, a very uh, dark protest because it was a sort of funeral um, um, uh, march uh, on the uh, vaccine inequity in Brussels. Um, could you tell us, in, in, in broad lines, what, what was your message that you brought there?
2: Yes, we we were there in front of the. The headquarters of uh, the pharmaceutical industry lobby group uh, FPIA, because um, that lobby group has um, used its 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 lobbying power and its 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 many lobbyists, the millions that they spend on lobbying, and their privileged access to the European Commission, they've used that in a, in a deeply responsible uh, way. They have made uh, false promises to, to the EU. They, they claimed that they uh, were able, as pharmaceutical industry, to produce sufficient vaccines for the whole world, including the world's poorest. And they have uh, at the same time uh, very uh, strongly told the European Commission to not agree to any um, wavering of patents and intellectual property rights. The demands that were made by India and South Africa and, and many other countries So they told the the EU that that was uh, misguided and wrong and dangerous. Now, we know uh, today that those promises of producing and delivering vaccines to everybody that needs it, that was a a false promise. Uh, Still, we have a huge majority of the world's poorest that are not vaccinated, with all the dangers that come from that. and so so we're, we're still facing a disastrous stage of the pandemic because of, of, of this um, false line of the pharmaceutical industry. And of course, we're there to protest against the EU that bought into this, these demands from the pharmaceutical industry. <clears throat> and we were there to demand that the EU um, changes course and starts supporting a TRIPS waiver, the sharing of technology, the enabling generics production of vaccines and uh, medicines against Corona.
1: Thank you, Olivier. Now, indeed, what you say, the situation is still uh, very, uh, very, um, uh, um, yeah, very um, stark. Indeed, uh, uh, 60%, 66% of uh, people in uh, G7 countries are uh, doubly, double vaccinated, whereas that figure in Africa is only 6%. That was a figure that I read in a very recent article of the Financial Times on uh, Pfizer's um, global coup. Um, the um, the picture that comes from this article really uh, shows how not only Pfizer has managed to um, get a very dominant position in the market, uh, realized enormous profits, um, but uh, also um, basically um, um, strengthened its uh, grip on 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 politics on how governments deal with the pandemic has that you have been researching the power of big pharma for several years and the past year together with colleagues you have published many articles on how big pharma has um, has uh, gotten uh, an influence uh, on EU politics has this article in the financial times surprised you <clears throat> well
2: the article it, it really released- uh, adds uh, additional ev- evidence and, and a lot of important uh, examples to what we uh, what we already knew and that is that um, it's it's been a, a tragic mistake by the eu by the u.s um, governments to hand uh, this kind of power to large pharmaceutical companies that are essentially, profit driven. They're mainly concerned about their shareholders. So instead of using the power that governments have uh, in a pandemic to force uh, these pharmaceutical uh, companies to to, uh, do an efficient global vaccine rollout and deliver vaccines to everybody that needs it, the governments have handed uh, the power to decide to companies like Pfizer. And we now know that Pfizer has abused this power and they have uh, um, hugely prioritized delivering vaccines to the richer countries uh, where the where the prices are higher, and they have in many cases denied uh, requests for for vaccine deliveries to uh, to poorer countries. So it's a really shocking picture, very predictable, but this was inherent in the choice to not make the vaccines a global public good, contrary to what was first promised but basically um, uh, hand all the the key decisions hand all that power over to uh, to Pfizer and a small number of other pharmaceutical companies.
1: Shocking indeed. So do you have any idea why the European Union and especially the European Commission is so stubbornly almost uh, holding on to its resistance against this uh, TRIP waiver?
2: Well, it 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 is very hard to explain because it's it's hugely damaging for the reputation of the European Union. This uh, this hard line and this aggressive stance that they take in uh, in uh, in in, uh, international negotiations on uh, on how to get out of the pandemic. Uh, And I guess it's a combination of a number of factors. I mean, it 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 really shows so clearly how deep the neoliberal thinking how how deeply. Uh, ingrained and and rooted that is in the Commission headquarters and in many European governments. It it also shows the the ideology that promoting the interest of of European pharmaceutical companies in this case, but also European multinational companies more directly, uh, that that is uh, the overwhelming priority, the overwhelming uh, approach so it's a combination of those factors, so ideology and and a kind of identifying the interests of Europe with those of European uh, multinational companies, and then uh, uh, for Commission President von der Leyen, uh, she has made it her uh, political life project, you could we'll say, to align herself with Pfizer and 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 a few other pharmaceutical giants. And and she wants to uh, to come out of the pandemic uh, with this image of the one who who vaccinated Europe and and and, and got us out of this disaster. Thereby, she's taking a, a very very Eurocentric and and very very limited and inadequate approach. But it, that seems to be uh, what is happening. Um, and and of course, uh, as we now have uh, new dangerous variants uh, of the virus coming. It's a it's a losing strategy, but uh, the stubbornness is, is indeed uh, shocking.
1: Yeah. Now, CEO has published many uh, um, research articles the past months that show uh, more in depth why why this is happening and how uh, Big Pharma indeed has a direct line to the European Commission. Um, now. Uh, talking about publications and learning from mistakes, a few weeks ago, um, you published a new article, research article called Bitter Pill, how the EU's defense of pharma profits could keep COVID treatments out of reach for millions. Quite a strong um, title. Um, can, you, can you tell us what, what is this new research about? <coughs> yeah, the new research, uh,
2: it, it zooms in on what is what is very good news to start with is that um, there are now uh, a significant number of, of treatments that are becoming available, treatments that can uh, help corona patients stay out of hospital and stay out of intensive care units. So uh, medicines and, and other treatments that are, that are quite effective and that could really uh, be a game changer uh, if, if they become available to, uh, to all the patients that need them. So that's extremely good news. Um, but then uh, what, we, what we found when we looked into the EU's strategy for these treatments, for these uh, therapeutics, um, it, it, it turns out that, uh, that again, uh, the EU is taking a deeply Eurocentric and, and, and very limited approach. Um, they have developed a strategy for getting these treatments uh, onto the European markets as soon as possible. That's a good thing. Um, uh, they will. Um, they have pooled scientific uh, knowledge. Uh, try to prioritize the best, uh, the best treatments. Um, they've made subsidies available. They've created a, a fast approval process, and now they will start with joint procurements for the EU as a whole. So all of these things are fine. But what is what is uh, disastrously missing? is a strategy um, that uh, can make these treatments affordable and and actually available to the world's poorest. So um, it's very similar to the vaccine strategy, unfortunately. And the EU is is really repeating uh, the mistakes that it made uh, with the vaccine rollout, taking a a nationalistic or Eurocentric approach and um, and forgetting the global uh, dimension. uh, f- completely failing to uh, to deliver solutions for the for the global uh, dimension of the, of the in this case the <laughs> making these uh, these medicines and these treatments available
1: that indeed um, sounds like B, uh, being uh, really in contrast with the famous slogan, we are only safe until we're all safe, a slogan that was used the past year by many European politicians and policymakers. But when you talk about um, new therapeutics, new treatments, are we talking about these um, pills um, instead of vaccines? Or what, what kind of um, medicines are you referring to?
2: Uh, yes, um, it's, there, there are broadly speaking three different kinds. Uh, there is um, there are pills indeed, which are or antiviral pills. Uh, quite a few uh, different ones are becoming available, and you have more uh, newer um, uh, treatments, uh, methods uh, like antiviral um, monoclonal antibodies. Um, and and several other types of treatments and all of them work in different ways in the different stages of the the illness um, and can help patients at different stages. Um, uh, And as I mentioned, there are quite a few different ones and there are are, I think also around uh, um, a dozen or more pharmaceutical companies that are very close or already have these, uh, these treatments available.
1: Now, last question. Um, if I understand it well, Pfizer, for example, to to stick with that uh, very powerful company, um, uh, announced that they would donate or make available at a very low price um, these um, uh, it's it's pill it's it's um, um, that's coming on the market. Um, Is that that also part of the, um, let's say, strategy that the rich world has used so far is basically uh, counting a lot on um, um, philanthropy, let's say? Yeah, the problem with these uh, these treatments is
2: that they're in in most cases extremely expensive. Um, so uh, for for Merck's uh, Merck's um, uh, for example, five day course costs seven hundred dollars, and there are others that are even more expensive. So um, cool. this is per treatment, a treatment indeed, uh, but for the for uh, uh, the overwhelming majority of the of the world, that is far too expensive. So it would mean uh, at those prices, those those treatments treatments would not be an option. They would not be available to the world's poorest. So um, unfortunately, what what is happening now is that it's up to the pharmaceut- each pharmaceutical company to decide if it wants to be generous and uh, offer some kind of deal, it could be donations of pills. It could be uh, allowing some countries uh, to produce um, the treatments as generics. And that is indeed what uh, what Pfizer and Merck and Roche have done. They have taken well, their own voluntary initiative and uh, as a kind of gesture in response to um, the pressure that's there from public opinion, to, um, to, uh, to not um, completely price out uh, the world's poorest. The, the limitation of this is, of course, that uh, it's, it's entirely up to each of these companies how what they want to do. And in most cases, um, the, uh, their, their initiatives do not go far enough. They exclude lots of countries, countries with hundreds of millions of poor people, who, with the uh, the deals that are offered by these companies, they would not get access to these treatments. So the conclusion, I think, is very clear. In a pandemic, um, it's obvious that governments need to use their political power, they need to use their, their financial power, their purchasing and subsidy power, to force companies to do the right thing. They will not do it by themselves. They are profit-driven um, companies, very clearly. We know that from the vaccine uh, rollout experience. So governments need to do this, so they, they need to uh, simply force companies to allow generics production for the world's poorest. And of course, crucially, uh, the EU needs to allow other governments to do what they think is necessary to, to make these treatments available at, uh, at affordable prices. And that's where the TRIPS waiver proposal is really crucial to, uh, to enable generics production.
1: That's, that's very clear, thanks. Um, I have heard that just now, um, in uh, early December, it was decided that, uh, that the international community will start negotiating a global pandemic treaty um, but if I listen well to you and other voices and researchers, um, uh, it seems a bit that the global uh, uh, health strategy on, in dealing with this pandemic has uh, more or less been privatized. So that is not a very good starting position of negotiating such a international treaty, right? That's abs- that's a good way to describe it. Um, uh, the the the
2: vaccine rollout strategy and now the, the, the strategy for the, for the treatments, it has been left uh, to a very, very large extent in the hands of, of uh, pharmaceutical giants and that is uh, that is not the way to, uh, to solve the
1: problem, clearly. Okay, thank you very much, Olivier, and uh, good luck with the uh, with this struggle. We've come to the end of this podcast and I want to thank you for listening. And a special thanks goes out to my guests Olivier Hudeman and Dimitri Eynickel for sharing their knowledge with us and for taking action. I also want to thank Marc Baroner and Jan Callaward for their technical assistance. Now, if you like this podcast and if you value the work of CEO, then please support us to stay independent. We are a very small organization that works fully independently of funding from EU institutions and corporations. So, every single donation, small or big, is needed to help us fight the hold of big business over European policymaking. Stay tuned, stay safe.